Scripture this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 11. We will be reading from verse 1 to verse 18. And on the backdrop of that prayer that we have sung together, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. My prayer is that as we hear the word of the Lord, the Spirit of God would do among us that which we have asked Him to do. We are um, currently in our series in the book of Acts. And uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible, if you did not bring a Bible this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible in a pew in front of you and open it to page number 956. And let's hear together and read together the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being led down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us to how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa, and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's ways? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Praise be to God. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Let's ask the Lord to speak to us and apply this word to our hearts. Gracious Father, how majestic is your name. How great you are. Oh, help us see this morning the greatness of your work in salvation. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit once again. For our hearts need a word from you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, friends, um, we have this morning a repeat, a retelling of the story we read and talked about last week. Uh, do, do you like watching a movie twice? Typically, no, unless it's really, really good. Or no, unless there's something else that you missed and you want to go back and, and, and see so you can get a fuller picture of what happened. In, in some ways, this is why Luke tells us the story of the conversion of Cornelius a second time, because there's so many great things happening here, and he wants us to see some things again so we may have a fuller picture of what had just happened in chapter 10. This retelling of the story of, of Cornelius' conversion will be repeated again in a much shorter way in a much more summarized way in chapter 15. So three times this story is being retold in the book of Acts. In chapter 10, God had to work on Peter to convince him that God was about to do this work. In chapter 11, Peter has to convince the church in Jerusalem that this was God's work. And how would the church in Jerusalem get a sense that, that they should put aside their objections they should put aside their criticism of, of Peter. Well, by the way Peter tells a story, it, it answers the objection, at least for now. We'll see that it does, it's not fu fully answered in chapter 15 because this comes back again. But at least for now, in chapter 11, Peter answers their criticism by emphasizing the greatness of God in salvation by emphasizing the greatness of God in salvation. How will the church in Jerusalem be, put, uh, be convinced to put aside these objections? By emphasizing the greatness of God in salvation. At the end of uh, Peter's speech, he concludes his speech, his explanation, with the following question. Look to verse 17. And this, this brings silence to them. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What a great question. Who was I? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When confronted with God's work of conversion in the life of Cornelius and his family, how could Peter stand in God's way? When confronted with the greatness of God in saving Cornelius, how could Peter stand in God's way? There's an important conclusion that the audience uh, drew from this story. And the entire retelling of this story here in chapter 11 points to this conclusion, which is in verse 18. Look at verse 18. When the when they, the crowds, heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This story is aimed to raise our hearts in praise, to praise God for His greatness in bringing about salvation. Not just in sending Jesus to die for our sins. We get that but also in bringing this salvation to our hearts, 
to apply it to our hearts. And in this particular case, God applied this salvation to the hearts of Cornelius and his household, the Gentiles. Now, how do we see the greatness of God in salvation in this story? How do we see the greatness of God in salvation in this particular story? Five ways. If you like taking notes, here's, here's the first one. Five ways in which we see the greatness of God in salvation. The first point is God extends His Word to whomever He wills. God extends His Word to whomever He wills. The entire story begins with this beautiful expression. Look at verse 1. The Gentiles also had received the Word of God. Now, why did the Gentiles receive the Word of God? Let's ask the most obvious question. Why did the Gentiles receive the Word of God? I ask this question because the answer to it humbles all human pride and all human-centered approaches to even missions and outreach. Why did the Gentiles receive the Word of God? Was it because the church in Jerusalem had a strategy for reaching out to the Gentiles? Was it because the church in Jerusalem was burning with compassion for the Gentiles? No. Actually, the church in Jerusalem lacked both. And yet, and yet, God still brought about conversion to the Gentiles, despite the obstacles that the believers in Jerusalem had. The, the Gentiles received the word of God because this was God's plan. God extended His word to whomever He wills. And God arranged for His word to be proclaimed even to the Gentiles, despite the initial hesitation that Peter had. And despite the Jewish Christian hesitation now in the church in Jerusalem. You realize that Peter would have never gone to Cornelius' house. Had God not made clear his plans to Peter? And Peter, when he's retelling this vision, he's bringing out how God was leading him step by step to convince him that Peter should not call unclean that which God makes clean. So Peter retells in this story how God led him to make this journey. And even when Peter comes to the church in Jerusalem, they are the ones who are now having a hard time with Peter going and associating with unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles. Now is the church in Jerusalem that struggles. And they're attacking Peter, even though the result of Peter's journey was that the Gentiles received the word of God. This story is about the church's struggle to accept the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. And it humbles us. The very church, the very people who should be excited about the expansion of the Gentiles, the gospel to the Gentiles, instead of, instead of being excited about it, they have a hard time with it. Friends, this is not something we, the church, should boast about. That this is how it started. It's humbling. Nobody in the church in Jerusalem could write a manual on how to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Actually, the only manual they could write was how they opposed it. 
If it was up to human strategy and priorities, even for the church, the gospel may have never expanded to the Gentiles. That's a humbling thought. It's a humbling thought. But praise be to God that He extends His word to whoever He wills. That it doesn't depend on human strategy, on human initiative, human creativity. Remember Jonah's unwillingness to go to Nineveh? Jonah opposed God's plan to send him to Nineveh. But who was Jonah to stand in God's way? Even in the belly of a fish, Jonah could not stand against God's ways. God had determined for Jonah to get to Nineveh. There is nothing in Jonah that could oppose God's ways. Why? Because God extends His word to whomever He wills. God will take His messengers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Not because it stands on the, on the willingness or unwillingness of the messengers. It's because God is able to extend His word to whomever He wills. God always magnifies His greatness when He does that, not human greatness. Paul said to, about his preaching ministry in 1 Corinthians 9, Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast. I can't boast. For I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And friends, sometimes we have a theology of evangelism that makes it sound like if we don't go, God's plan to bring the gospel will fail. It will never fail. It will never fail. Here we have an example that even when we are inclined to oppose God's agenda, God reminds us that we cannot make His plan fail. We cannot oppose Him. God might oppose us, but we can't oppose God. Will this discourage missions work? By no means. It should encourage us in the work of evangelism. It should encourage us in the work of missions. The Word of God cannot fail even when we fail. Therefore, don't try to fail. Don't be discouraged about failing. Don't be afraid of failing. Even when, humanly speaking, it might feel like we failed, the Word of God will not fail. Why? Because God extends His Word to whomever He wills. That's point one. Point two, salvation means receiving the Word. Or salvation is described as receiving the Word. When Peter gives the details of the story in Caesarea, what do you think should travel around? What happened in Caesarea that was just a, a big flashy thing that should typically travel through the grapevine? That the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, right? But notice the way Luke chooses to introduce the story at the beginning in verse 1 by telling us what was heard through the grapevine. Look at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. 
Now, everything that they have experienced on that day in Cornelius' house could be introduced by this phrase, they received the word of God. Now, how can salvation be described as receiving the word of God, especially in a context when what the Gentiles received was the Holy Spirit? Well, the Apostle Peter explained this much, much later when he wrote his first letter, his first letter of Peter, in chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Why should you do that? Here's why. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's why, that's how they were born again, through the seed, an imperishable seed, which is a living and abiding word of God. That's why salvation can be described as receiving the word of God, because it is an imperishable seed. It starts germinating in us, and it brings to us that new birth, because the new birth comes through the living and the abiding word of God, this is why the Word of God is such an crucial, of such a crucial importance for the people of God. There is no salvation apart from the Word of God. There's no such salvation apart from the Word of God. Friends, the life of the church is a life of those who received the Word of God. The life of the church is a life of those who have received the Word of God. Do you think of other Christians through this picture of Oh, so-and-so is a Christian. Oh, so-and-so is one who has received the Word of God. If you are a Christian, there are many ways in which you could describe yourself. But I wonder if this phrase describes you. Is this a big deal for your Christian experience, that you received the Word of God? Clearly, it was not a big deal for the church in Jerusalem. For instead of rejoicing that the Gentiles received the word of God, they became critical of Peter. Now, who exactly these people are in the church of Jerusalem? Um, were they a group within the church or were they a group outside the church? Well, if we go to chapter 15, verse 5, um, we, we hear this, their description again in, in chapter 15. And it says, But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Some of the believers who also belonged to the party of the Pharisees. That means there were some people from among the Pharisees who had joined the church and they were now part of the believing family, the, the, the church in Jerusalem. This means that members in the church of Jerusalem, even though they, they believed in Jesus, they responded to Jesus, at this point they're more influenced and for them it's more important the fact that the Gentiles are people who are unclean than the fact that they receive the word. For them, the reception of the word is not the main thing. That's why they're troubled by it. But friends, the word of God is able to bring us life. That's why in the story, salvation is described as receiving the word. 
how pitiful, how sad that people in the church in Jerusalem didn't think of this as a weighty matter. Friend, if you have received the word of God, you are a Christian. But I wonder if your receiving of the word of God is really true of your life. This receiving of the word of God is not just a, a hearing. It's not just an acknowledgement. It's not just a, a, a knowing that it's there. And yes, of course, it came from God. I, I know that. That's not the kind of receiving of the word of God that, we, that, that, that we're talking about here. It's a kind of receiving that embraces it, that believes it with one's entire heart. And one actually starts acting according to this word because it is the word of the living God. If, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is one of the things that Christians put a lot of emphasis on, to receive the word of God as it has been given to us in Scripture. Everything this word teaches us about Christ, everything this word teaches us about our sin, about our rebellion, about our need for a Savior, about Christ being that sacrifice for our salvation, about the need to believe and repent, we, we believe all that. And if you're here this morning and perhaps you have a, an intellectual knowledge of that word, but you've never actually embraced it, you haven't actually received it, I pray that today you would receive the word of God, that you would believe it in your heart, that everything it says about you, about humanity, about our sin, about Christ, about God's salvation is indeed true. If you'd like to know more about how you can receive this word in your heart, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But there's something important about this picture of receiving the word. You either receive it or you don't. You know, people think, well, I can just put it on my shelf. I can suspend it. I can suspend judgment on it. No, you can't. You either receive it or you don't. And if you have not yet, I pray that you do so today. What salvation means receiving this word, embracing it, embracing everything that the apostles and the prophets have revealed to us about God and his salvation. Salvation means receiving the word. That's point two. Point three that shows us the greatness of God in, in salvation is that God is determined to save. God is determined to save. When Cornelius told Peter of the instruction given by the angel, look at what the angel said to Cornelius in verses 13 and 14. Look carefully. Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and your household. How did the angel know? I mean, the angel doesn't say, um, send to Joppa for Peter. He'll bring a message to you by which you can be saved. You and potentially your household. That's not what the angel says. It says, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. This message will not fail. Why? Because the angel knew the mind of the Lord. <laughs> the angel knew that God determined it. God planned it. God was going to pour out his spirit on Cornelius and his household during the preaching of 
of the gospel through the mouth of Peter. Peter had no idea what God was about to do. He preached this message because God commanded him. He had no idea. But it was God who determined the, Corne the conversion of Cornelius, and the angel announced it to Cornelius ahead of time. Now, this is the greatness of God in salvation, dear friends. You know, sometimes we think of God as if he is sitting in a balcony and watching people below see if, if they will, and waiting, waiting to see if people will choose him. He doesn't wait to see what people will do. God determines. Now, from our human perspective, it feels like he's waiting. Because God commands us to choose. God commands us to repent. And we must repent and we must choose. We must make a choice. There is no way around that. Jesus began his preaching ministry by this very clear command. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 1. But friends, just because we are commanded to believe and repent, just because we are commanded and we must make a choice, and oftentimes, we wait. It takes time. That doesn't mean that God is waiting. God determines people to be saved. God is not simply offering salvation as a possibility, but as an actuality. Now, here's a big difference. Here's a problem we run into. The angel knew what God was going to do in very specific ways. We don't. So we human beings do not know the mind of God in all its details. We do not know the people whom he calls in a special way to be saved. We are called to preach the gospel to all people, even to those who will reject it, even to those who, who will reject us and persecute us because of the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we preach it for all people. Because God made this promise that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a great promise. That's a great hope. And yet, at the same time, our confidence is that those who do call on the name of the Lord and respond to Him through faith and repentance are those whom the Lord calls to Himself. This is what Peter said in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, in verse 39. So the greatness of God in salvation is shown in this third way, is that God determined to save people. It will not fail. Here's a fourth way. Here's a fourth way. God gives His Spirit to facilitate cleansing. God gives His Spirit to facilitate cleansing. When Peter began speaking, at some point during his message, God poured His Spirit on the Gentiles, uh, on, on Cornelius and the household. In this particular case, the Holy Spirit was manifested through speaking in tongues. However, the reason for this manifestation of the Spirit in speaking in tongues is not the speaking in tongues. That was not the purpose. The purpose was so that God would be able to convince Peter and the church in Jerusalem that these Gentiles received the same Spirit in the same way as they have received in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So they couldn't come and say, well, they didn't get it the way we did, and therefore we can't believe it. God wanted to make sure that the similar ways in which Pentecost happened would now happen 
on the Gentiles. That's why in verse 15, Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. In other words, the gift which is Jesus poured out on the Jewish disciples on the day of Pentecost, that gift was now poured on Cornelius and his household. Same way. This is not a repeat of Pentecost. This is an extension of Pentecost to the Gentiles to show that Pentecost was not just for the Jews. Pentecost was for the Gentiles as well. And then instead of going to the details of, of, of how the Spirit manifested, look at what Peter says in verse 16. He tells a remembrance that Peter had. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And John himself, John the Baptist, made this promise. If we turn to Luke chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. Just listen to the following words that John said about his baptism and about the baptism that Jesus will give. I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What is Jesus, what is John the Baptist saying here about his baptism and Jesus' baptism? Is that Jesus will provide a baptism which will actually be an act of cleansing Israel. It will cleanse Israel. Jesus will differentiate between the wheat and the chaff. Jesus, by bringing this baptism of the Spirit, will bring the wheat into his barn, leaving the chaff aside, and one day he will burn it with unquenchable fire. For John the Baptist, this baptism of Jesus with the Holy Spirit is a baptism to cleanse Israel. So when Peter remembers the words of Jesus, and by the way, that's how the book of Acts started, when Jesus tells the disciples, look to Acts 1. This is the first few verses, Acts 1, verse 4. Or verse 5, for, he says, don't, don't go from, for, uh, from Jerusalem. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus compares his ministry of baptism with John's ministry. In other words, all this comes into Peter's memory. So when he remembers the words of Jesus, Peter is actually extending, applying it to the Gentiles also. It's not just Israel that God will cleanse, but the Gentiles also. Yes, those considered unclean in the sight of the Jews are now cleansed through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God and are separated from the chaff. By the giving of the Spirit, they prove to be the wheat which Christ is bringing into his barn. This means that from now on, the boundaries of the people of God are no longer dietary foods, but the cleansing that comes from the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why, friends, membership in the church of Jesus Christ is to be determined by a new kind of cleansing, the cleansing created by the Spirit of God in our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why when the church in Jerusalem heard 
all of this from Peter and about how God gave the Spirit to the Gentiles and how Peter remembered the words of Jesus and the baptism of, of John and the baptism of, of, of Jesus through the Spirit, the conclusion they draw focuses not on the Spirit but on the repentance that God gave them. They get excited. They hear about the cleansing that the Spirit did and what they get excited about is the repentance that God granted them. Now, why would repentance be a sign of receiving the Spirit? Because one of the works of the Spirit inside of us is to cleanse us. The Spirit takes a junk, puts a, puts a spot, spotlight on it, convicts us of it, points us to Jesus, whose blood was shed to wash us of our junk. Spirit applies that to our hearts. Spirit cleanses us so that now we, with joyfulness, Repent and believe in Jesus. That's why repentance and faith is a sign of the work of the Spirit having come upon us. That's why when the Spirit cleanses us, He's the facilitator of faith and repentance. God gives a Spirit in this chapter, not for the sake of speaking in tongues, but for the sake of facilitating the interior cleansing of the Gentiles. Friends, this means that the idea of a second baptism as uh, it's often used in um, Pentecostal theology, is not supported at all by this passage. According to this text, to be baptized with the Spirit is to be converted, to be given the repentance that comes from God, to be given the ability to, the re to receive the Word of God. All these experiences that the Spirit does in us happen prior to the baptism by water. This is not a second baptism that happens after you're baptized. This is a baptism that comes cleanse us so that we might indeed be a new creation for God. That's why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's how, that's how the church is described. We, are, can, we can be the church because we have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, cleansed from within. The final last point that shows the greatness of God in salvation is that God grants a repentance that leads to life. God grants a repentance that leads to life. Most often when Scripture speaks of repentance, it describes it as, as that which we people are responsible to do. And let's be very clear, we are responsible to repent. And if we fail to repent, it is our fault. It is our guilt. There are clear commands in Scripture for this. But while it's certainly held that we are responsible for this repentance, while failing to repent is 100% our fault, at the same time, the following truth is also valid. God grants us repentance. God grants us repentance. The church in Jerusalem concluded that God gave the Gentiles not simply the possibility of repentance, not simply the potential of repentance. God gave repentance. Now, there's something crucial about this repentance that God gives. It's not just a temporal repentance. It's not just a temporal change. 
people can repent. They can feel sorry and make new resolutions towards God. But such repentance may not lead to life because later people may turn away from God. They may walk away from Him. They may disown Him, never ever to come back to the Lord. Such temporary repentance does not lead to life. Such temporary repentance is only the human fabrication. It's only man-founded. Such repentance does not have its source in God, but only in man. When God grants us repentance, it's a repentance that leads to life. It will lead to life. Remember, who is it that received this repentance? Cornelius. Now, we would say, why does Cornelius need repentance? Look at how good of a man he was already. Look at how religious of a man he was already. Look at how much he prayed. Look at how much good he did to people. Look at how, how good of a reputation he had. God even answered his prayers. Why does he need repentance? Because, friends, as we saw last week, even religious people need the repentance that God gives. We can muster up our own repentance. We can, we can act repentedly once in a while or for some time without actually having the repentance that God gives. The repentance that God gives is permanent. It will lead to life. Why would we be afraid of calling people to repent when we are assured in this passage that repentance is a gift that God gives? I'm amazed. I'm amazed why we have a hard time even uttering this command from people, telling people, you need to repent. Why would we be afraid of that? Are we afraid that we might insult them? Repentance is a gift of God. Why would we be afraid of calling people to do which God supplies them to do? It's because we actually have a hard time believing that God grants repentance. Oftentimes we have a very man-centered view of repentance. That's why we're afraid that somehow we might insult. But if God is determined to save people, if God is determined to grant the Spirit by which He grants repentance to people, we should have no fear to call people to repent. Oh, friends, this is a greatness of God in salvation. From, the, from A to Z, from the beginning to the end, salvation has its source in God. And when we realize that, there's no more boasting about our ability there's no boasting about our choice. It's because God enabled us, because God moved our hearts to respond to Him. Five ways in which this passage shows us the greatness of God in salvation. God extends His Word to whomever He wills. Salvation means receiving the Word of God. God is determined to save people. God gives His Spirit to facilitate cleansing, and God grants a repentance that leads to life. Oh, friends, if we would recover the greatness of God in salvation, I think we would be more zealous, more faithful in sharing the gospel. I think we would be more confident in sharing a message that will not fail because God is the author of our salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, gracious God, how marvelous and great are you 
when you display your work of salvation towards us. And that work was indeed displayed on the, in the cross of Christ. But your greatness in salvation doesn't stop merely with the cross of Christ. It also extends in the way you bring the salvation to be known to the ends of the earth. And Father, yes, you desire to engage us, to use our words, to send us, to make this word known. Oh Lord, I pray that we would focus on your greatness, that we would not be afraid, that we would not feel somehow that it's all on us, depending on our strategy and power. Oh Lord, help us see your greatness in the salvation. And based on that greatness that we might respond appropriately to your greatness. Oh Lord, move us. Move us to acknowledge you. For those among us who are away from you, who have not yet received your word, I pray that you do move them, move their hearts to respond to you. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I invite you once again to stand.